Before we dive into this episode of HRD Masterclass, I'd like to take 30 seconds to share the exciting news that we're now seeking sponsors for Season 5 to release in 2024. This is a wonderful opportunity to support the podcast series and also share your message with 3,500 HRD listeners around the world. Sponsorship options cost just $750 and $600 per episode, and for full details, contact D-A-R-R-E-N at allbypodcast.com. Right, let's start the episode. This episode of Human Resource Development Masterclass is dedicated to the memory of Professor Ahad Osmangani, who sadly passed away just two weeks after we completed our recordings. Ahad was a well-known and well-respected member of the HRD family, who achieved much in his life and his career, including receiving the Outstanding HRD Scholar Award from the Academy of Human Resource Development. I knew Ahad for over 20 years and loved how he always made time for people. He was one of life's learners and life's teachers, and I believe you'll hear that come through clearly in this episode. Thank you, Ahad, for all you gave to the HRD profession. I'll miss our conversations. Let's now listen to the episode. Welcome to the Human Resource Development Masterclass, the new podcast series from the Academy of Human Resource Development, the organization that leads HRD through research. I'm your host, Darren Short, And throughout this first series, I'll be joined by leading authors, researchers and scholars to explore the fundamentals of HRD and how those are changing in the 2020s. Our focus for this episode is cross-cultural HRD, and we'll be exploring how to be successful in HRD when working across cultures, the tools, models and frameworks that help when working in different cultures, the challenges of applying theories and research generated in one culture when working in a different one, adapting HRD content for different cultures, and much more. To help me, I'll be joined by two leading scholars. Dr. Ahad Osmangani of INCEIF Global University, Malaysia, and Dr. Rosia Mohamed Rusty of University Putra, Malaysia. In the first part of the episode, I'll chat one-to-one with each of them, and then for the second part, Ahad and Rosia are together to explore their shared interest in cross-cultural HRD. That discussion is brought to you with the help of the generous support of our sponsor, the Faculty of Educational Studies at University Putra, Malaysia. All of the content you'll hear in this episode was recorded during May and June of 2021. Right, let's dive in to meet my first guest. My first guest for the episode is Dr. Ahad Osmangani, Professor of INCEIF Global University, Malaysia, and specially appointed Professor of Kyoto University, Japan. Ahad has taught at the Nanyang Business School in Singapore for 17 years, as well as working in countries including the United States, China, Indonesia, India, Bangladesh, and Saudi Arabia. Ahad has published seven books, more than 150 scholarly research papers, and was the editor-in-chief, editor, and board member 
of several reputed international journals. In 2009, Ahad was the recipient of the Outstanding HRD Scholar Award by the Academy of Human Resource Development, and he has also received several awards and distinctions from other organizations around the world. Ahad has provided professional consultancy services to many local and international organizations. His expertise and research interests span the area of HRD, cross-cultural management, spirituality in management, and leadership development. Hi, Ahad. Welcome to the HRD Masterclass podcast. It's great to have you here in our episode focused on cross-cultural HRD. Thank you, Devin. So, so I wonder if that's a good place for us to start uh, is with that term cross-cultural HRD, because when I uh, read journals and I'm in conversations with people, I find they use two terms that sound similar but could be different, which is cross-cultural HRD and international HRD. So I'm wondering what you see as the difference between those terms and which you use. Okay, I think this is an issue that I have been often um, questioned at different seminars and symposia that have been presenting. Uh, in fact, there are a few more terms rather than international and cross-cultural terms. When we talk about the culture, we try to see culture in different forms. One is the national culture, then there is societal culture. Then we have also the corporate and organization culture. Then we have another thing which is often ignored from our research is called professional culture the cultures of different professional groups. Then underneath that, there are subcultures based on ethnicity, religions, other, other factors, even based on gender, age, educational background, and financial standing and other things. There are subcultural groups in a society. And in organizations that you know, we have subcultures in different units, departments, and expertise groups. So the issue is most of the time in the research arena, when we talk about cross-cultural research, normally we use nation as a proxy for culture. So most of the scholars, most of the researchers, they try to do international differences. That means differences among the national practices. But when you talk about cross-cultural, then we are looking at more specific area, more focused attention of, on culture, which might be within a nation, or some nation might have many different cultures that we call multicultural societies, another term, multicultural. Like for example, United States, Malaysia, Australia, Canada, these are multicultural societies where you have distinct social ethnic groups, subcultural groups, who are born and raised with different types of social and family values of their citizens of the same nation, same country. When we talk about international HRD, we are trying to understand and do research on the similarities and differences among the HRD practices or HRD research of different national environments. But when you look at the cross-cultural, we are trying to focus more attention on the cultural values and beliefs, morals, the, 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 the assumptions that the people are born and raised 
in different families of different social cultures. And in fact, to me, that is the most significant factor that impacts our HRD research and practice. When we design, develop, and deliver the HRD programs, in each stage, we need to take the impact of the social cultural differences because the cultural values are differences. In many other research, it was found the thin top national culture is there, but it doesn't have that significant impact on these learning programs, HRD programs, that is impacting the people's learning and retention of the, those learning. Uh, in fact, I did a one piece of research when I was in Singapore on uh, cross-cultural negotiations on Singapore citizens, <clears throat> because Singapore, like Malaysia, is also multicultural societies. There are three ethnic subcultures, which is Malay, Chinese, and Indians. Then we try to see these similarities and differences, how these people are the same citizens, same group of Singaporeans, Singaporean nationals, went to the same schooling, same kind of public sector jobs or private sector jobs. When they do business negotiation, are there differences in their communication and exchange of in business? And we found significant effects. In fact, that was published in a, one of the top tier journals on uh, the significant differences among these uh, negotiation or cross-cultural negotiations. So the fact I'm trying to see that they are, we cannot ignore the cultural difference, although we need to understand the national differences. But when you do the national differences, that means the recommendation I made in that article, it is not enough for international managers coming to Singapore for doing business negotiation only to understand Singaporean cultures. No, they have to understand the basic values and features and behaviors of Chinese managers, Indian managers, and Malay managers, which I found significantly different. Now, you've researched and practiced HRD in many countries and in many cultures. Um, and for those who are new to the concept, what are some of the main lessons that you've learned about how to be successful in HRD when working in different cultures? Based on my experience of teaching, doing business, doing consulting in many countries, I was always curious to know why people display different types of behavior in the work setting particularly. Having a curious mind, developing the sense of curiosity is very, very important. Before we try to make a generalization of the causes of the behavior that we are seeing. So we need to have an open mindset to be successful in various cultural contexts. We need to come with various open mindset. And I always tell my students in cross-cultural management MBA class, that you cannot be successful if you are bogged down with certain mindset, which might be impacted by stereotyping and overgeneralizations of the behavior of some people based on your reading, watching movies, or hearing or nowadays about social media impact. So we need to have an open mindset and try to understand the real reasons for differences in behavior that we observe among workers, among our colleagues. And that is very, very important. 
if we don't do that, many times we try to generalize or sometimes overgeneralize the causes of that behavior. And unknowingly, we fall into the trap of one of the most dangerous thing in the cross-cultural management is stereotyping. Stereotyping, as we know, is a template that is created in our mind based on our preconceptual uh, thinking, knowledge, observations. But in reality, it might not be true. We need to be in different cultural contexts. We need to take a pause and try to understand the reasons of the different actions that we see, our actions, as well as the actions of our colleagues and subordinates. And in that sense, based on that, we need to have an extreme level of flexibility in making decisions in different contexts. The other thing that I have seen, when a manager or an employee was sent to different sociocultural environment, there is obviously initial culture shock. Now, there are a lot of research done on culture shock. In fact, there is a series of books on culture shock. Now, we had several prescriptions in my model. There are 10 different um, recommendations. First of all, how to do, identify that you are going through culture shock. Many times we don't know that we are going to culture shock. The symptoms that tells you we're going through a culture shock cycle. And there is a culture cycle. We have four stages of culture shock cycle. And now how to overcome and minimize, because it's very difficult to remove the shock, but how to minimize the impact of the culture shock. So these are the things we need to understand that working in different cultural contexts, doing business with pe people with different cultural values or behavior is not easy. It's very, very challenging. So we have to prepare ourselves before we go to deal with people from different cultural environment, even if in the same nation, same country, but it is a multicultural society. When we try to deal with people, whether it is giving feedback, designing a training program, giving some examples, you know, receiving feedback in each of the areas, we need to be very, very careful how we do with people with other countries. So you mentioned the culture shock model there and how you've used that. I'm wondering, are there other tools, models, or frameworks that you found helpful that could help others when they're working in different cultures? Nowadays, in my cross-cultural management class, I use five or six different frameworks. One of the frameworks, earlier frameworks, was Klukong and Krobar, who developed six dimensions, and they they concluded the differences behavior to observe among people from different cultures are based on the following six dimensions of those. Edward Hall, another scholar, he came out with a two-dimensional framework. His interest is always on cross-cultural communication. So the, he has high context and low context cultural frameworks. One of the most popular cross-cultural management framework that is used and many HRD scholars have been using it, is Gart Hofstede. His milestone research in 1960s and 70s of cultural value dimensions. And that research came out with four dimensions. And that was, the study was done 
in about 40 to 50 different countries. Later on, he added some more. And Hofstede's research identified at that point in time four cultural dimensions, as you know, individualism, collectivism, power, distance, masculinity, femininity, and um, uncertainty avoidance. These are the four ones. Later on, in 1970s, when he was uh, teaching in Hong Kong, he started the Chinese-oriented cultures of East Asia and developed a new dimensions called Confucius dynamism. Later on, he gave it the name of long-term and short-term orientations. Then comes another um, breakthrough research done by Fons Trompenars, another Dutch social scientist. His uh, seven dimensions of culture, he's written many books and the framework he's developed from his doctoral dissertations done in Wharton Business School. So he came out seven dimensions of culture then, uh, of course, Schwartz, Shalom Schwartz has developed another kind of uh, um, framework, which is also being used and developed seven dimensions as well. So that is also popular among some areas, but there are some overlapping dimensions among Hofstede, Trumpeners, Schwartz, dimensions like collectivism and uh, autonomy, and those are the issues. The latest addition to this very authoritative, I should say, uh, the convincing and valued research in the cross-cultural management, which is much more focused on leadership, is the GLOBE study. GLOBE stands for Global Leadership Organizational Behavior Effectiveness. The GLOBE study was done not by one or two researchers, it's done by more than 400 researchers in different countries, and more than hundreds of organizations were studied. And based on that study, they developed nine different cultural dimensions, focusing on effective leadership. Another area, uh, another addition in this research is they try to develop clusters of cultures. And they develop 10 different clusters of cultures. So country cluster studies have been very useful for, especially for HRD and cross-cultural training design models. In my doctoral dissertation also, when I studied about 32 different countries of the eight, 10 HRD variables, I developed also a cluster of six different country clusters. So the cluster studies was found to be very effective in a way because what happens, there is a question that has been continuously raised among the scholars and practitioners that when you design and deliver training program, the especially in multinationals. The tradition, it was done in the corporate headquarters and managers of all subsidiaries are brought into corporate headquarters and they have been given training, whether it's HRD or other issues, they've been given training, say for one week or two days or two weeks in the corporate headquarters and then they go back to their own subsidiaries to work again. Now the question has been raised on that issue, whether that training will be effective design and delivery will be more effective that impacts the performance of those managers coming from different cultural environments. So now what is the other option? The other option is to design and deliver the training program for groups of each cultural environments, managers of each cultural environments. That will be much more effective, but that is much, much more costly and time consuming. So is there a middle ground? 
And that's why the country cluster groups or cultural cluster groups were found to be very useful. Because cultural cluster, country clusters were developed based on the similarities of values and beliefs and ideas. So the recommendation was instead of doing specific country-based training programs, instead of doing one training program with corporate headquarters, why don't we develop, design, develop, and deliver the training programs based on the cultural clusters? So that, that's what the, the cluster issues were very, very useful uh, in that area. Given what you were just saying there, Ahad, it, it makes me think that a lot of the frameworks or models that you've described have come out of um, Europe or have come out of North America. And of course, those are being applied around the world. And what I'm wondering is, in your experience, if there are challenges for those who are seeking to take European and North American theories and research and applying them in practice, for example, in, in, in a continent like Asia? Unfortunately, there's a tendency to apply those models and frameworks um, in a wholesale manner in Asia or in any other countries outside North American Europe. And to me, it is very dangerous in a way. It might confuse the students or it might have sometimes negative impact. So when I teach my courses in management area, manage in, in workshops and seminars or in MBA classes, I always say that whatever you see, this is the book, this is the research, but don't swallow it. Take it, that is the God's word. We have to understand, we have to take a pinch of salt. You should be skeptical by looking at the methods, by looking at the subjects that were studied to develop this model. Are there differences in those areas in the subjects, behaviors of the subjects and the findings which may be similar or may, may be conflicting the, with the social cultural values of say, for example, Asia. So like, for example, the contrasting feature, there are many, many contrasting features. One of the contrasting features is individualism versus collectivism, right? The decision-making consensus-based decision based or majority opinion-based decision or democratic decisions. And these are, these are different things. The processes are so different. I mean, we know that if you go to Japan, they, they will throw you out if you try to make a majority opinion-based decisions. It was, has to be always ringy system of Nawamashi system of management unless the full consensus is not arrived, there will be no decision made. So the other concept that we see, the concept of family, because the role of family is so important in Asian societies. The other major issues in Asia is the face saving or concept of group harmony. And this is also influenced by the some of the factors which might be similar to like power distance society. How are how distribution of power in the society are seen 
people at the higher level they make the decisions and people at the lower level they automatically obey those decisions without questioning questioning the people of the higher authority is considered to be very very offensive in asian societies unless we know i mean question at least in public unless we know those issues we might fall into the trap of making misjudgment in delivering our hrd program or in conducting any kind of hrd practice in the asian societies the other thing that was found in different parts of the asia like for example eastern asia the the confucius value based issues is very important on western asia is much more of religious values that impact the behavior of people and those also very important we need to take into consideration how much religion plays a role or religious values plays a role in designing delivering of hrd programs or doing any consulting work with different groups of people in the asian societies so we need to be very cognizant of those issues when uh, we look at and these are the ma major challenges that we feel that's what i mentioned in the earlier statement i made we need to come up with open mindset and we need to have a very flexibility in making decision well thank you so much for our conversation today ahad it's been it's been wonderful exploring cross cultural hrd with you okay thank you very much darren it was uh, it was a pleasure to share some of my ideas and thoughts hopefully that will benefit our hrd scholars researchers and practitioners in um, designing developing implementing evaluating all different types of hrd works uh, in future that's wonderful well, please stay with us while i chat with rosia and then we'll be you'll be back later in the episode uh, for the group conversation so for now thank you so much indeed thank you My second guest for the episode is Dr. Rosia Mohamed Rusty, Associate Professor at University Putra, Malaysia. Rosia was the head of department and coordinator for the HRD postgraduate program at the university. She's currently a member of the Board of Directors of the Academy of Human Resource Development and also serves as conference chair for the AHRD International Research Conference in Asia 2021. Rosia's research and publications revolve in the areas of career development, talent, and competencies development. Rosia serves as a reviewer of numerous journals, and she sits on the editorial advisory board of the Human Resource Development Review, Human Resource Development Quarterly, European Journal of Training and Development, and the International Journal of Training and Development. Hi, Rosia. Welcome to the HRD Masterclass podcast. It's great to have you here in our episode focused on cross-cultural HRD. Hi, Darren. Thank you very much. So it's great to be here. Too. Given the topic of this episode is cross-cultural HRD, I'm thinking that a good place to start would be to explore what we actually mean by the term. So, Specifically, what do we mean by the term culture? Culture is an intricate concept composed of more than 
160 different definitions with a diverse range of understanding among scholars and varied between academic disciplines and sometimes even within them. And the definitions of culture abound and range from very complex to very simple. And, and oftenly cited definitions given by Clarkhorn is that culture consists in pattern ways of thinking, feeling and reacting, acquired and transmitted mainly by symbols constituting the distinctive achievements of human groups, including their embodiments in artifacts, the essential core of culture consists of traditional ideas and especially their attached values. And later on, we can see the evolutions of the concept of culture, whereby Swash in 1992 defined culture as the derivatives of experience, more or less organized, learned, or created by the individuals of the population, including those images or encodements and their interpretations or meaning which transmitted from past generations from contemporaries or formed by individuals themselves. Let me give one popular approach to the conceptualizations of culture, which is given by Hofstede, which is the onion metaphor. So like an onion, culture can be seen as having different layers, visible and invisible. And at the surface are various practices that can be observed and compared. And at the core of the onion is the mental software that people are not fully aware of. And it normally takes a significant scientific effort to extract the contents of that core and understand how they relate to those of the outer layers. At a more advanced level, culture could be viewed as an unification of potentially related and relatively durable societal characteristics that describe an identifiable human population, such as a nation or ethnic group. Okay, so having looked at what we mean by the term culture, how do cultures then affect workplace behavior and values? Let's look at the three distinct cultural dimensions as suggested by Hall. They are context, time, and space. So in a high context society, people value nonverbal keys more than verbal keys, which is written and spoken. And high context people look for nonverbal keys such as facial expressions, tone of voice, body language, and hand gestures, all of which are conditional. So conversely, people in a low context culture need to express words explicitly for communication purposes because they cannot use implicitly shared information to a significant extent. So they value information which is verbalized. And some examples of the countries that fall under the high context umbrella are Malaysia, 
China, Japan, Thailand, and India, while the low contacts countries include the UK, US, and Canada. And the second dimensions given by Hall is time and space. There are two orientations of time, monochronic and polychronic. So people in a low context culture belong to the monochronic time, whereby time is viewed as being critical to the task to be undertaken. As such, people see time flows sequentially, tasks are conducted one at a time and have set deadlines, and punctuality is adhered to and respected. And people in this context value adherence to an agenda in a meeting to ensure that tasks are aligned with what has carefully been planned and are based on schedules. In contrast, in polychronic time cultures, tasks can be carried out simultaneously and people can engage in multitasking. Time is observed loosely as reflected in attitudes such as flexible, relaxed, non-punctual, and non-urgent. And the next dimension, as indicated by Hall, is space. It is an understanding of how people view nature and degree of space in different cultures. Moreover, the concept of proximity also enlightened us about the boundary of privacy and issues such as trust from the perspective of culture. If we go back to Hofstede's metaphor, uh, the onion, and I, I think that really does such a good job for me of capturing the challenge of working with cultures because you enter a culture that's new to you and what you're seeing around you is that outside layer. And, and of course, there are so many layers to that onion that you don't even know are there and you can't see them. And if you could, you still couldn't understand them. So this presumably means there are all sorts of issues that surface when you're working across cultures. So, so I'm wondering, when you you know, given your experience, when you look at that, what do you see as the critical issues in working across cultures? When we talk about the critical issues that surfacing in working across cultures, so there are three main issues, which are cross-cultural communications, cross-cultural negotiations, and cross-cultural decision-making. So in regards to the cross-cultural communication, according to Hall, the founder of the intercultural communication field, communication is culture and culture is communication. And many people have different ways of communicating a decision like no, and some may use the word bluntly and straightforwardly, and some may just noted and supported the statement with a subtle and polite manner, while others just stare blankly and refuse to utter any words. And for many, saying no is not easy. And in some cultures, saying no is not a big deal. 
you do it with ease, you do it without guilt, and you do it all the time. But in some cultures, saying no is a no-no. You do what you are told, whether you are willing or not. So you perform the task because you respect the authority of the person who requests or instructs it. So the communication style in both scenarios is different. In a culture where saying no is easy and acceptable, communicating a negative response is no problem. And the second issue surfacing the working cultures is cross-cultural negotiations. Negotiation is a skill which is culturally rooted, which can be improved during our lives. For people who are more flexible and collectivist, negotiation is real bargaining and a cross-boundary activity. For bargaining itself, has a different meaning in different cultures. And as said, negotiation style is much determined by one's cultural values, which suggests that an understanding of culture and awareness of negotiation styles can guide to determine strategies for presenting the issues and solving them. And the third issue surfacing the working cultures is cross-cultural decision-making. From a cultural standpoint, decisions can be made in two different ways. The first kind of decision-making is interdependent and collective, which rests on an effective and risk-averse orientation. For example, in my Asian culture, decision are made based on the authority of a boss. And often subordinates will defer to authority to determine what kinds of decisions they can make or when they can make them. And you should not make a decisions in light of oneself unless you are told to do so by a high-ranking superior such as a boss. So a second mode of cultural decision-making is where decision can be, make, can be made independently and people prefer a linear process of thinking to arrive at a choice. In an individualistic culture, decision-making is an independent process where each person has the autonomy to decide what is best for me and myself. And other people can contribute to that process by providing information to support the decision, but others should not and cannot significantly influence our mind, feelings, and actions to arrive at final results. And decisions rest in the hands of the individuals, and he or she is accountable and responsible for the results. And generally, in Western culture, people employ a sequential, logical, and rational method to first weigh the pros and cons of a decision. I, I find when I have conversations like this on the topic of culture that often the, the theories or the models or frameworks that bubble up 
tend to be those of Hall or Trompenaz or Hofstetter. And of course, much of that work happened decades ago. And I'm aware of the fact, of course, that they have been updated over time and they've been added to. But I still get a sense that maybe a lot of that framework model discussion has its roots back maybe in the 60s and 70s. So what I'm what I'm wondering is when you take a look at research and writing that's emerging now, what do you see as the emerging perspectives in cross-cultural HRD that, that may be bubbling up at this point that may change how we view cross-cultural work? The field of cross-cultural HRD it's been developed around the work of Geert Hostedy. And the majority of the research in cross-cultural management utilize a comparative and quantitative model similar to Geert Hostedy's. And there have been many calls over the years to develop new perspectives in cross-cultural works. A great number of scholars from various disciplines have made significant advance for cross-cultural works, such as De Eriban, Jackson, Primatz, Ririgat, Sodersen and Holden, Sue and Witt, eh, to name a few. And other authors, such as House, Trompinas, have actually followed the inspirations of Geert Hoff today, and notably by drawing attention to another important dimensions in the knowledge of cultures or by refining the methodology Hoff today developed. So the emerging perspectives in working across cultures began with richer approaches and closer links to contemporary anthropological procedure which have been developed such as that of Philip D. Eribon in 2009 and 2008. And some of his works earlier before in 2004, 1997, 19, 1989. So he developed an ethno perspective that is based on qualitative surveys in large scale firms and and on a sound knowledge of the history of the country in which these firms operate. And this approach enables him to bring to light in the country where the enterprise studies are located, a wide spread of cultural logic. He shows the effect of this cultural logic on the management of firms and the behaviors of the actors who work in them. However, the work of Philip de Uriban is not exempt from criticism either. For example, by proposing just one major cultural logic per country, he tends to simplify the reality of contemporary culture. And indeed, it seems problematic that only one major cultural logic is at work in any contemporary society. Other call for new perspective is the management of multiple cultures and not of a single national culture. 
scholars such as Sackmans and Franz have emphasized the reductive nature of traditional approaches. According to them, other cultures than the one national culture participate in the construction of cultural behaviors, local, regional, professional, industrial, and other culturals, and also active participants. They believe it is essential to take these other cultures into account in the constructions of the analytic model of behaviors at work and in organization. And in their opinion, the national culture is far from being the only explanatory factor in international and intercultural inter contexts. And most of these approaches fit into an interactionist perspectives. And that is to say, they suggest studying the cross-cultural interface in the context of interaction, while traditional studies do not do. It, it sounds like um, from the more recent studies that you described there, that there's been a shift maybe in the the paradigms used by the researchers over time. And it makes me th think that to a certain extent, or maybe to a great extent, our understanding of culture and of working across cultures is influenced by research paradigms. Is, is that your experience? Um, to answer to the questions, uh, we need uh, to understand how culture influenced by research paradigm. So um, let's highlight the three streams of research which can be identified in cross-cultural management. First is studies which adopting a cross-national comparison perspective investigate the variation of values across nation with half today being a seminal work. And this stream of research is generally grounded in the positivist paradigm and is associated with well-known researchers such as Half Today, Swartz, and House. And comparative studies have, however, also been conducted from an interpretive paradigm exploring different national models such as the Ereban and Reading in 2005. And as of today, the cross-national comparison perspective and the positivist paradigm, they are still dominant in scholarly research and publications of cross-cultural management, and as well as in teaching materials. So the second stream of research focuses on intercultural interactions, often in a binational setting, and investigates processes and practices linked to culture, predominantly at the national level within an organizational setting. In this stream of research, culture is frequently taken for granted, sometimes viewed as a dynamic and creative process or considered a social constructions so the third stream of research refers to the multiple culture perspectives, trying to shed light 
on the various cultural influences that exist simultaneously at different levels of analysis, such as nation, industry and organization, as well as cross-cutting group, such as ethnicity, profession, etc. Including interactions between these levels and cross-cutting groups that may influence individuals' identity and hence their behavior. Research within this stream has also been conducted on the basis of the interpretive as well as the positivist paradigms. So when we compare research conducted in different paradigms, we can notice that the imbalance still exists. And I would suggest that the positivist paradigm occupies a dominant position in cross-cultural works. And looking at these three streams of research paradigms, a selection of one stream would impact on the understanding of culture and how we view culture. Well, Rosia, thank you so much for our conversation today. It's been wonderful to have this opportunity to talk about culture and cross-cultural work with you. Thank you, Darren. I hope that this session benefits all audience and provide insights, particularly about culture and also cultural works. Thank you again. Up next, we have the group discussion where my guests are together to discuss their shared passion for the episode's topic. This discussion is brought to you thanks to the sponsorship support of the Faculty of Educational Studies at University Putra, Malaysia. Located in Sedang, Malaysia, this institution is a leading research university in education and HRD in Southeast Asia. The faculty welcomes all opportunities for international collaboration with all members of the education and HRD community worldwide. Their faculty members are looking forward for any international engagement, including research collaboration, cross-cultural virtual programs, postdoctoral and scholar exchange, mobility and student exchange, and much more. For more information, please visit their website at educ.upm.edu.my or visit their Facebook and Instagram page at educ.upm. So welcome back to the HRD Masterclass podcast. Our focus for this episode is cross-cultural HRD, and I've already met one-to-one -one with Ahad Osmangani and with Rosia Mohamed Rusty. And for the final section of the episode, we're all together for our group chat. So welcome back, Rosia and Ahad. Thank you, Darren. Nice to be back with this interesting episode. So for the group discussion, what I'd like to do is dig a little into some of the topics from your one-to-ones and then also consider a couple of new ideas as well. So to start with, I'd like to explore cross-cultural expertise. Now, in both of the conversations I had with you, it was clear that working across cultures can be very rewarding and also very challenging. And I was therefore wondering what advice you would give to an HRD professional who wants to develop the expertise that's needed to work in different countries around the world. 
to develop HRD program, design, develop, or deliver HRD program in different cultural environment. Uh, the first of all, the HRD pre, uh, person should try to identify his or her gaps and skills and knowledge of cross-cultural issues. Uh, we might have a wrong idea that since I have traveled two or three countries, since I have done some work in four or five countries, I have the expertise to do cross-cultural training in any different cultures, which is a very wrong assumption because the fourth country or the new country or the sixth country that we are getting into, their cultural values, beliefs are, could be totally different from the last five countries that you have worked in. So it is very, very important to identify the gaps in the knowledge and the skills. Maybe, you know, right now we have the concept of cultural intelligence. What normally I do, take a CQ test, cultural intelligence test, and try to identify the gaps in each of the four domains, which is quite comprehensive. And then find out what you need to do. What are the gaps before you go to work overseas? And one of the other recommendations that I like to make is to go always with an open mind and be flexible uh, with kind of an adaptive attitude. The other, the literature has a concept called pre-departure training or pre-departure learning programs. That learning programs could be formal learning or informal learning. Finally, I'll also like to recommend, and this is very important, that before you go to that culture, to do this some kind of work, try to find out who else have been working or have worked in the past. That means the current expatriates who are working there, if you have about through your social network, or those who have returned after working in that culture. Get some tips from there, from them. What are the issues they experience and the, how they handle it? That experience will be a great resource for working and being very effective in doing cross-cultural HRD work. I'm actually on the same page with Ahat, and I would conclude what Ahat mentioned just now in terms of all those uh, skills needed to work in different countries around the world as uh, skills of cross-cultural competence. So basically, cross-cultural competence is skills that characterize by abilities to manage um, the stress, to manage stress and also interrelated or international work settings and work successfully with people from different national cultural backgrounds. Um, and at the individual level, this cultural competence requires three crucial concepts, which are cultural awareness, cultural knowledge and cross-cultural skills. So it takes more than knowing and being aware of the cultural diversities and possessing the necessary skills. So when one is culturally competent, there is this deeper level of assessing one's cultural assumptions, prejudices, values and beliefs. And it takes on an effective level where the individual is able to view the world through another person's eyes 
or understands that every people may perceive the world through different perspectives. So one of the probably most common scenarios I can think of of working across cultures for HRD, I think, is where a multinational company has built a training course and they've built that specifically for one country. And my guess is in many cases it's built for the United States or it's built for the United Kingdom. And then that company then wants to roll that training out around the world because, of course, they have offices in many countries. So what advice would you give for how to go about doing that and to how to adapt training for different cultures? Okay, Darren, I think this is an issue that has created a lot of problems in the past, not only in the US or UK, in any countries you say, whether it's in Germany or French or any other countries, now most, most of the time are in Japan, where the corporate headquarters is located. The training is mostly done there. So the managers from all over the world, all subsidiary managers are brought in in the corporate headquarters and we're given a dose of training, whether it's a three-day training or one-week training or two-weeks training, and then they are sent back to their own countries. Now, the question problem is that when they design those training programs with examples, with different wordings, and also when it's delivered to verbal and non-verbal communication, those have been influenced by the trainer's own cultural values. Many times, I should say most of the times, the learners and trainers did not get the message properly because sometimes it backfires. The examples that was given of the terms that was used could be culturally offensive to the people, some of the people in the training program. So I am strongly recommending, and the literature is very clear on that aspect, especially in the cross-cultural management literature, the training programs, learning programs should be designed by considering the cultural values, beliefs, and morals of the society where the trainees will be belonging to. So if we consider that, there must not be one set of training materials and one set of training methods for delivery for all the countries. So training programs should be designed, developed, implemented and even evaluated through product proper adaptation based on the cultural values of the nation. Now, how do you do that? Now, there are a lot of research recently that identified those issues. Use those research findings and take the local input before designing, before the identifying the appropriate training methods and you have the examples and the other issues that should be used in delivering the training and then validate those training program before rolling out. The other option is to use the cultural clusters as a basis. That cluster of countries based on the similarities of the cultural values must be much more appropriate rather than going to each individual countries. I do agree with Ahad that the national cultures also influence in terms of how we're going to adapt the training for different cultures. And to explain how organizations do this, 
and should do this. So I'm employing the national culture theory, which assumes that national culture can be a valid point of comparison. The theory suggests that national cultures differ in values, beliefs, and reasoning systems. Host today compared work-related values in 40 countries from several perspectives, including individualism, collectivism, power distance, uncertainty, avoidance, masculinity, femininity, etc. And he suggests that national cultural characteristics should be used and should be integrated to understand the environmental input to local learners, but not to predict the reactions and characteristics of individual learners within the particular culture. And in addition to that, the national culture theory is also in agreement with the adult education literature, which suggests that learners' experience and social context should be included in learning. In the field of adult education, it is widely accepted that learning is situated and full of context, and that program developers should adjust programs to accommodate learners' backgrounds. Thus, it is suggested that multinational programs should leave room and allow flexibility in their standardized design for localization. And in order to effectively convey the training message, it must be accurately translated and adapted to fit the culture it is aimed at. Without taking proper steps to do this, the message will be lost in translation and never fully understood by the very people it is intended for. We focused a lot on how culture differs from nation to nation and can also differ within a nation. I suppose one of the other things that can vary between nations in addition to culture is language. And so I'd like to focus just a little bit on that, particularly in terms of how important language barriers could be in working across cultures. So if, if work and training is being done in an employee's second or third language, I'm wondering what the implications are then for HRD. Language is very critical. And in working across cultures, language is generally portrayed as imposing barriers that impair local operations and overall coordination. And language to the extent that it is embedded within the broader construct of cultural distance and it itself is a proxy for uncertainty of the organizational environment. So individuals interact and make interpretations with their cultural and linguistic context, with language serving as a cultural system of signification. So when people cross borders, they need to find how to become a part of local networks the way they enter the system, and of course, is different in each country. And sometimes entry is almost impossible 
But the first step is to identify the network. And of course, language ability is utmost important in these regards. From networks, one gains informal advice, knowledge that cannot be delivered in formal meetings. The support of a key person for the next career move and the global manager should figure out how the local informal system works and do their best to get involved and if they wish to be part of the overall system. And for that to occur, language ability plays important roles. So if training is being delivered in employees' second or third languages, what would be the implications for HRD? So this is an important issue as well. And it in, generally, it implicates individual, group, and organizational performance. So if training is being delivered in employees' second or third languages, or utilize the global language design, it affects corporate performance via several ways. From my perspective, we need to use language as a means of getting closer to the audience. To do that, the trainer should have some degree of proficiency. It is impossible to master, master all the language of the world, but at least some words should be learned before going overseas for training. Because we know the research is very clear, language is called the door opener for understanding a culture. So at least some knowledge of working language, if not the whole language, sometimes of street language is very useful for getting acceptability by the learners and training. So it is very, very important to learn some language before going overseas for conducting training program. And the language should be understood from both verbal and non-verbal perspective. And one of the recommendations given all the times for the foreigners going overseas in the training program should stay away from using the colloquial terms, jargons, and sometimes jokes, because one joke could be very effective in one culture and that could be very, very offensive in another culture. So if you are not, Confirm if you're not sure about the jokes will be appropriate, stay away from using the jokes. Oh, as a final question for the episode, I'm, I'm reflecting back on the conversations that we've had, and it feels like there's a lot that we do know about culture and working across cultures. But at the same time, it also feels like there's much that we still need to learn, which I suspect makes it a ripe area for for more research. So in light of that, I'm wondering what advice you would give to researchers about how to approach research on cross-cultural HRD as they seek to improve our understanding and sort of close this knowledge gap. There is a need to understand the definitions of local HRD, which fits the local context and local specific culture. Research devoted to investigating cross-cultural HRD has been primarily conducted 
through the quantitative research approach and from the experience of Westerners. Therefore, there is a need to engage in a qualitative research approach that looks into the insights and the knowledge as provided by non-Westerners who have undergone cross-cultural experience. The field of cross-cultural HRD still needs to take a broader perspective by incorporating more indigenous concepts such as Gonzai, Wasta, etc. And by addressing more directly the impact of culture on individual group and organizational outcomes, both within cultures and across countries worldwide. To do cross-cultural HRD research, the researcher, the first requirement is that the researchers should have an inherent interest or intrinsic motivation to take the challenges of doing cross-cultural HRD research. And cross-cultural HRD research is challenging because you cannot use the traditional research design frameworks, models, and theories in all areas. One of the major challenges of doing cross-cultural HRD research is data collection from different cultural environments. One of the best way to do that is to identify a research partner from the host culture. And that will be very useful for collecting data as well as to make uh, interpretation of the findings that was received. The other thing that I mentioned earlier is that this today's world are increasingly becoming multicultural in nature with the migration, with the movement of people from one culture to another culture. Even the traditional homogeneous cultures are becoming more heterogeneous. For that reason, we have to focus on subcultural issues rather than taking a national culture. National culture forms a very thin layer on the top of the, the societal cultures. And beside, beneath the thin national culture, there are specific subcultural values that need to be investigated, that need to be understood properly to do a good job in different cultural environments. Well, unfortunately, we've reached the end of our time for today, but I want to say a big thank you to both of you for our conversations. It's been wonderful to have a discussion with you about cross-cultural <laughs> HRD. So thank you so much for being part of our episode on cross-cultural HRD. Thank you. It is a great pleasure to be part of this effort. Thank you to Darren and thank you to Ahad. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. It was wonderful spending time with Ahad and Rosia. If you enjoyed the episode, check out our others to explore topics such as training and development, learning organizations, critical HRD, and much more. New episodes release weekly for this first series. To learn more about the series, check out hrdmasterclass.com and to learn about the Academy of Human Resource Development, check out ahrd.org. By becoming a member, you can access extra bonus materials not included in the podcast. 
Also, don't forget to look into our group discussion sponsor, the Faculty of Educational Studies at University Putra, Malaysia, by visiting their website at educ.upm.edu.my. I'm looking forward to being with you in our next episode. Until then, this is Darren Short, signing off from the HRD Masterclass. HRD Masterclass Podcast is brought to you by the Academy of Human Resource Development and is a production of allbypodcast.com. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Professor Ahad Osmangani, who passed away on July the 16th, 2021.